Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Crip Camp battled for Best Documentary at the Oscars, and while it didn't win, it was a major moment for Judith Human, who is basically the Martin Luther King Jr. for the disability rights movement. I caught up with Human about the Oscar night experience and her decades-long fight for equality. You were in L.A. for the Oscars. You guys didn't win, but what an honor to be nominated. Yes, it was phenomenal to be nominated and to be able to be on the red carpet. And uh, Crip Camp made it to a major story in the LA Times and uh, it's gotten great coverage. So uh, it was a win to be a part of the top five best documentaries. Oh, absolutely. You mentioned the red carpet, but during the actual ceremony, where were you sitting with, you know, the filmmakers? Were you with Nicole Noonan and Jim Lebrecht or, or how, what was the seating arrangement like? So our table was right next to their table. We were just kind of touching. And, um, yeah. And then Marley Matlin, who's also a friend, uh, was the person who was emceeing that section where, uh, documentaries came up. So it was very nice to have her. Um, be the one who was announcing and describing the films and said, of course, that uh, Crip Camp didn't make it. But it was a great night. Yeah, they chose the Octopus movie. What the heck? <laughs> I was No, I, I'm sure it's great. I need to catch up on it on Netflix. But, um, you know, Crip Camp was great. I mean, my, my wife and I watched it, God, almost a year ago now, probably. I think it debuted last April. And it was right at the start of the pandemic. No one knew, you know, were, were there going to even be movies to watch. And Crip Camp provided a light at a really dark time. So thank you for that in general. Um, real quick, I, I want to move to, obviously, the social importance of everything covered in the documentary. But um, one more thing on the Oscars. One more on the, you know, on the the fun glitz and glamour side. Did you bump into anyone famous last night? You know, any bucket list moments of, you know, brushing shoulders with some celeb? <laughs> well, there were a lot of people there, but you know, it wasn't that crowded, so I think that was very good. And I went over and introduced myself to the woman who won Best Supporting Actress. Uh, the actress from Korea, sorry, I don't remember her name. Yoo Jung Yoon from Minari. Exactly, from Minari. And I, I had just seen Minari on Saturday and Sunday. So it was, and then she had won the Spirit Awards also on Thursday. So I went over to thank her. And then the little boy who played in Minari um, was there and we talked. And then I went over to introduce myself to a couple of other people who have done good work. So it was really a fun evening. And uh, we were sitting in the room where uh, the presentations were being made in the very front. And there was a ramp that was 
integrated into the steps. So had Crip Camp won, then Jimmy and Nicole, instead of Nicole walking up the steps they and Sarah, they would have all gone up the ramp. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. But, I mean, just to see, just the fact that they had a ramp up to the podium shows the legacy of all of you and everyone else in, highlighted in the movie, all of your hard work, because it is, it's almost, we almost take it for granted. It's easy to take it for granted now. We look around, we see, you know, a, a ramp leading into a building or, you know, a lift to lift a wheelchair up onto a school bus or something. And, you know, it's sort of commonplace now. If kids see it now, they probably think it was always this way. But, you know, d- just talk about how that was that was decades of hard, hard fought work to get those now commonplace things out there. Yes, very true. So there were a number of laws, Section 504, which the film highlights, which made it a requirement that entities getting money from the federal government, amongst other things, would have to address the issue of accessibility in new construction and major renovations. And then, of course, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which brought in the private sector in many areas, including accessibility. So the truth of the matter is the Academy has likely been in violation of the law for all the years that they didn't have a ramp to be able to get to the stage. So I'm very happy that they did it, but I also really want to underscore that it was a legal requirement for them to do it. I love. I just love that you never... You never, you never stop the fight because you're right. There's all these, uh, you know, other egregious things that you're finally seeing. You know, I assume, was this the first year the Academy even had a ramp? Yes. So, well, there you go. We're in 2021 and, and we're, you're, there's still, still, you know, things to be done. So that's, that's oh, incredible. There are huge amounts of things to be done. Um, if we, if you don't mind, let me, I'm going to, I want to go through the movie sort of bring our listeners into it in case they missed the movie. I'll kind of move a little bit chronologically if that's okay with you. So it sort of opens, it sets the scene really nicely with sort of the archival footage of, you know, Camp Jen Ed in, in 1971. Um, explain, explain to our listeners, you know, where Camp Jen Ed was, you know, it was, I think it's like 40 miles from where Woodstock was just so, sort of, sort of how it was like this cool counterculture vibe place where, where you guys all met to begin with. Um, so Camp Jeanette was in Hunter, New York, which was a couple of hours outside of New York city and still today, but definitely at that point in time, it was very common for many children to go to camps There were no laws at that time regarding accessibility or inclusion or anything like that. And so, for example, my brothers both went to camp for a number of summers, but I couldn't go to the camp that they went to because the camp that they went to was not accessible. So there were camps for disabled kids in many parts of the country. And I actually had gone to a camp called Camp Oakhurst before I went to Camp Jeanette. And I loved it. It was a camp for disabled kids, and I really liked it. Now, the difference for me around Camp Jeanette was I was older. I was a teenager, and I think I was about 13 or when I first started going there. So, and many of the people who were at the camp, I had been classmates with in elementary school 
people like Nancy Rosenblum and Stevie Hoffman and Neil Jacobson, we'd all gone to elementary school together. And so going to camp was um, an opportunity to continue to be with people that knew each other, but also there were many other kids that we didn't know. Now we might know them, you know, if we went to camp one year and the next year we all went back. Camp, I think, did you go to camp, Jason? Um, not, not for a full summer, just like little, you know, like a couple week or two things. It wasn't anything as extensive as I think you did. Well, camp at uh, Oakhurst was like for three weeks and camp at Jeanette, they had two, four week sessions and some kids went for four weeks and some kids went for eight weeks. And I actually went one summer for four weeks, a couple of summers for eight weeks. And, uh, Jeanette, I think was a wonderful place because it was an opportunity for those of us with disabilities to really uh, be together and um, not feel awkward. In many ways, I think because media was not representing disabled people effectively and so many of us were wheelchair users, for example, or deaf or blind, whatever. We were going to programs that were separate. So we were not really being exposed in elementary school, junior high school, to non-disabled kids. Like we were not just a part of the fabric of what was happening. And so being at camp was an opportunity to be in a situation where we didn't feel awkward about our disability. So I think for people who have not seen Crip Camp. One of the reasons I think it's a fun film to see is you're really learning about experiences of teenagers. But the film itself starts in 1971 and it runs through the Americans with Disabilities Act implementation and really the last shooting I think was in 2017 or 18. So it gives you a historical view of what was going on in part over the, these many decades. One of the main issues that people leave the film with is how come we didn't know this story? I think that's the most compelling question that people ask. When we were at Sundance last year and thousands of people saw the film, the most prominent question was, how come we did, I didn't know that story? And so, I think this film really um, results in people no longer being able to say, how come I didn't know this story? But I think also requires that people uh, begin to ask the question more, how come not, I'm not learning more about what's next or other things that were happening simultaneously? For sure. It's such a great point of how, how do we not know the story? We, everybody knows, you know, the name Martin Luther King Jr. for civil rights movement. Everybody knows, you know, Harvey Milk for LGBT, you know, but not many people, you, I mean, you're basically that figure for this movement. And, and, and it's, it's really sad. And not, it takes a documentary like this. How many decades later? People now finally are starting to, to learn about it. Um, I think one of the other important parts about the work that's been going on with Crip, Crip Camp is that um, the director started something called an impact campaign. And numbers of documentaries over the years have been starting these impact campaigns to 
enable the broader public mm -hmm. uh, to learn about the subject matter. And the woman who's heading that up is a woman named Andrea Levant, and she's based in Arizona. She's got a great team, and they've been doing really amazing work. Last summer, they had a Crip Camp summer where they had 16 Sunday sessions where about 10,000 disabled people from around the world signed up. And it was like a two-hour session every Sunday where all kinds of topics were discussed. One of the very important parts about the impact campaign is that um, it is composed of people with all types of disabilities from various racial backgrounds and uh, socioeconomic communities and uh, people who acquired their disabilities early in their life and later in their life. And because disability is so many different parts to it. Sure. And they've been doing a whole series of other activities. And I think the impact campaign will continue to move forward. So the message of the film, I think, is being driven uh, deeper, both by bringing more disabled people through at this point, Zoom, to learn and speak with each other, but then also to, to work with businesses and others to learn more effectively about how to do inclusion of disabled people, for example, in the work site. That's great to hear that it, it continues with that. You said it's called the impact campaign. Everybody look up for right. that. Um, you alluded to it earlier really quickly, but dive into more about how you really latched on to Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. You know, the documentary really shows that when you found that part of language in Section 504, that is the bedrock you use to build your entire, you know, case on. Now, this also started in New York, in Brooklyn, which is where I lived. I had filed the lawsuit against the Board of Education because I was denied my teaching license officially because of paralysis of both lower extremities, sequelae poliomyelitis. And um, as a result of my being denied my license and going to court, we were getting a lot of publicity around going to court where we had the first African-American female judge on the federal bench uh, who heard our case and basically told the Board of Ed that she strongly believed that they needed to do another review so I got another medical review and I was given my license. And um, we started this organization called Disabled in Action. If you look at Crip Camp, you'll see that there were demonstrations on Madison Avenue in New York against President Nixon when he vetoed the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. DIA and a number of mayor's office on disability in New York United Cerebral Palsy of New York and other organizations were um, very involved in, as were national organizations out of D.C., were very involved in putting pressure on the White House to get uh, the law signed. And in 1973, it was finally signed. And so basically what went on between 1973 and 1977 the uh, regulations, the rules explaining how Section 504 would be implemented were being developed. 
Also in 1975, an organization started called the American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities, ACCD, American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities. And um, ACCD, when it was created, it, it died in about 1982. But when it was created, it was a cross-disability organization, meaning deaf people, blind people, people with physical disabilities, and others who had come together. And one of the main reasons they had come to, we had come together was because we wanted to make sure that the Section 504 regulations and other provisions within the Rehab Act, um, which is for another discussion, but at any rate, that those provisions were going to be implemented. And also to set up um, an office in D.C. that would be run by disabled people focusing on disability rights issues. And um, I think that was, there was this momentum that was being built between 1972, 73, and 77. So people need to know that the Section 504 language was only about 42 words. And so the regulations were very important because they were defining things like what is a disability, the whole issue of accommodations, um, meaning if a school, for example, had a class on the third floor in a building, but there was no elevator, what was the obligation of the school? And so issues like moving classes from one floor to another to ensure that a disabled person was not going to be the right, denied the right to participate because of lack of accessibility. And also building in requirements about what would happen if a building was existing but was going to have renovations or if a new building was going to be built. All those things were a part of the regulations, but also the regulations for 504 cannot discriminate against someone based on their disability if you're a recipient of federal financial assistance, looked at issues around education, services for disabled children, um, so that kids were not going to have the same experience that I and many other kids had, where when my mother took me to school when I was five years old, the principal said I was a fire hazard and couldn't go to the school. And instead, I had two and a half hours a week of education for the first, second, third, and half of the fourth grade. So uh, 504 uh, was a very important statute. And the 504 demonstrations, uh, which you learn a lot about in Crip Camp, uh, really demonstrated a number of things. One, the regulations had been drafted. They had been sent out for comment in the Federal Register. The comments had been reviewed and the final regulations had been developed. President Ford, who was a Republican that succeeded President Nixon when he resigned, uh, refused to sign the regulations. And President Carter had said that they would sign the regulations. What we began to hear in 1977, which is when President Carter 
assumed office was that the new Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, um, Joseph Califano, was not only doing a review of the draft regulations, which was reasonable, but was seriously looking at making major changes. And that's really when ACCD, American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities, sprung into action saying, we need to act as a national organization, umbrella coalition, and make a very clear statement that the regulations as they are is what we are demanding because there had been so many compromises that had been put in place between 73 and the end of 77, six rather, when the regs were being developed. So that's, you know, really uh, one of the main reasons why these demonstrations happened. Explain how you were able to reunite in Berkeley, California, a lot of you. You started at a, you know, an East Coast, upstate New York camp, and then suddenly you're on the West Coast uh, a couple years later, reuniting sort of, you know, as young adults actually launching a movement. I was teaching for three years. And in New York City at that time, you had to have a master's degree within five years. And so I was going to go to Columbia, but then I got a call one day from a gentleman named Ed Roberts. I didn't know Ed. Ed had got my name. He was looking to recruit disabled people from some other parts of the country to come out and get involved with the Berkeley Center for Independent Living and then go back to their communities to start similar programs. So I was accepted in the School of Public Health at Berkeley. I went out there and I got on the board of CIL when it was really just developing And um, I was out there for a a year and then came back and worked in Washington, D.C. for a senator, Senator Harrison Williams, who was chair of the Labor and Public Welfare Committee, and uh, then went back to Berkeley. And uh, so how did we join work that was going on in Berkeley when I first um, was accepted into graduate school, I called a friend, Nancy D'Angelo, who's also in the film, and said, do you want to move to Berkeley with me? So Nancy and I moved out to Berkeley. And then a number of other people that we knew over the next couple of years moved out to Berkeley. Pretty much, I think, because we were out there and we liked it. And so other people came. Um, so I would say it was more emerging of the East and West Coast where Berkeley was much smaller than New York City. Um, and Berkeley at that point, there had been a lawsuit against the company that was building the, um, train system called the BART system. And so, uh, the, the people that filed the lawsuit won. And so, the BART was being constructed excessively. So there were many different things that were going on. And a number of people moved to Berkeley because they think of the size, because CIL was really moving forward. It was a progressive organization uh, that was doing policy and services and was helping people uh, find places to live in the community 
get various kinds of support services, was very active with city, county, state government. So it was, it was a real hub. And the people who came from New York, um, were very motivated. And so all were involved in working at CIL or eventually maybe getting jobs outside of disability specific organizations. But the Bay Area itself, uh, Berkeley, San Francisco and surrounding communities was really becoming, um, a bed of activism with disabled individuals. For sure. For sure. In the film, it's, it's frustrating to watch you guys receive resistance from, it's almost, it was almost like bipartisan resistance for a while. You know, the Nixon administration showed resistance. And then like you're just saying, the Carter administration wanted to make, you know, some compromises and changes. And you said, no, we're going to, we're going to stand our ground. And there's that famous scene. And they even played it during the Oscar broadcast. You know yes. what I mean? Where you push back on him and you're like, I, w- I would appreciate if you would stop acting like you know what we're talking about. Yeah. So for the audience, um, there was about 150 disabled people and allies who um, stayed, went into the federal building in San Francisco. We had a meeting with the regional director for health, education, and welfare, and who was very unprepared, didn't understand what the meeting was that we had requested, which was to talk about 504 to find out what was going on in Washington. We really knew what was going on, so it was kind of a bluff. But nonetheless, when we met, you'll see this in the film, uh, he was really, he and his staff were really unaware of what the issues were around Section 504. And so um, when we were in the building one Sunday, um, a congressman named George Miller uh, came to the building. Many of us knew him. And one of his staff was actually um, helping us. <laughs> and George came while we were on the phone with a man named Peter Labasi. If you see the film, you'll see that uh, the regional director, Maldonado, said that the secretary had designated Peter Labasi as the person to be his spokesperson. So I and two other people, Pat Wright, um, and I believe Mary Lou Breslin, were on the phone talking to Peter. And George came in, and we just quietly asked him to pick up the phone. So Peter didn't know that George was on the phone. And we were going over the changes that they were considering. And at the end of the call, George says, Peter, this is Congressman George Miller, blah, blah, blah. And he was really outraged by what was being discussed. And then he turned, George turned around and said, don't leave until the regulations are signed. And then they were able, he and another congressman, Burton, who was the congressman from San Francisco, they held an informal set of hearings in the Health, Education, and Welfare building on the fourth floor where the 150 disabled people were. And there was a staff person from Washington health, education, and welfare, who had come out because the congressman had said he wanted uh, there to be a representative from the agency. And so he had testified before um, this part of the film. And 
It's not, that part is not in the film. And then he had left the room. And then Congressman Burton had gone down the hall and demanded that he come back in. So when I was testifying, this gentleman was sitting in front, shaking his head. And in my presentation, I basically unleashed how we were feeling about what they were proposing. And because he continued to shake his head, I made a statement, would you please stop shaking your head in agreement when I don't think you know what we're talking about. And the room erupted in applause, basically because, you know, we didn't think he understood what we were saying. And his shaking his head in agreement was really nothing sincere. Right. Well, it's a really powerful moment. And uh, audiences around the world saw it. Saw it last night uh, in the Oscar broadcast. It's pretty powerful yeah. stuff. Real quick, t- you've been generous with your time, but really quick, explain how much of a landmark moment that in 1990, the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990 was. You know, signed by I believe it was George H. W. Bush at that point. But um, explain how big of a moment in in history that was. I think it was another monumental moment because it was a huge lift to be able to organize a new piece of legislation, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was fairly comprehensive, addressing the public and private sector. And uh, what was important about this law is that, you know, many people talk about it as the Emancipation Proclamation for Disabled Individuals. And um, it required a huge amount of work in many areas. One, the development of the legislation. Um, There was an an entity which still exists called the National Council on Disability. And the National Council on Disability was statutorily um, created under the Rehabilitation Act, actually. And um, it was the NCD that originally uh, began to look at the need for a national piece of legislation later to be known as the Americans with Disabilities Act that would allow 504 to really expand to cover the private sector and to address some issues um, under 504 that needed further addressing. So it was a yeoman's job because there needed to be people who were drafting a proposed piece of legislation which the NCD was doing. And at the same time, Justin Dart, who's known as the father of the ADA, um, and a number of other people were working on uh, drafting the ADA. And then senators and congressmen on the Republican and Democratic side uh, were looking at the original draft and looking at what needed to happen to make it a bill that would be saleable. Um, So that's really what years and years of work were devoted to, working with the Congress, working with the disability rights community around the United States. At that point, there were some additional organizations that had been started, one of them, the National Council on Independent Living, 
which um, started in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And that's when the federal government itself uh, put money out there to start 10 Centers for Independent Living. Now, remember, Ed Roberts had started 10 Centers for Independent Living in California. So 10 Centers for Independent Living across the country was a paltry number of organizations. But nonetheless, you know, it's very important. And as a result of that, the National Council on Independent Living was created. And the National Council on Independent Living, many other organizations, the Consortium for Citizens with Disabilities, the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, um, the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, and many other organizations were pivotal in uh, working on getting a meaningful piece of legislation introduced and ultimately passed. I think the film itself, uh, Crip Camp, really allows people to see a little bit more in depth what I'm discussing. And you can see there was a, a joint hearing between the House and the Senate, and part of the testimony is in the film. And you'll see the various activities that people had to be engaged in to get the law finally brought to the floor and passed. But it's a huge, hugely important piece of legislation because it covers the private sector. So that means you, Title I, you can't discriminate against someone based on their disability if you are a company that has 15 or more employees. And huge issue. And uh, covers the public and private sector, transportation, many other areas. So it's a very, very important piece of legislation. And really, I think 504 and all the hard work that was done with 504 really allowed the Americans with Disabilities Act to be drafted and move successfully forward because many of the questions that were being asked when we were developing the 504 regulations had been answered. And, you know, we were able to say to congressmen and women that um, 504 came into law in 1973. Many of these issues had been worked out um, over the years and, it was time that the private sector also uh, no longer discriminate. And the Civil Rights Act of 64 is really where both 504 and ADA, you know, they really born out of the Civil Rights Act of 64 with the additional issues, as I was saying. So, sorry, I know these are long answers, but, you know, when Rosa Parks uh, was denied her right to sit on a bus. There was the Montgomery boycott. And black people did not ride the buses in Montgomery, Alabama for a year. And then they changed the law. In the case of disabled people who have physical disabilities and need and cannot walk up the steps, just saying that you could go on a bus didn't mean anything because you couldn't get on the bus. So work had to be done to ensure that new buses that were going to be constructed would be accessible, that trains would be accessible, that, you know, as we've moved forward 
in the area of technology that things like accessibility for blind people and for deaf people um, was something that had to happen. So many of these details were being worked out over time as 504 moved forward and then as ADA was being developed. Yeah, it, it's pretty incredible the, the amount of work that you all were able to achieve. Um, well, just in, in closing, I, um, I know after the ADA was signed in 1990, you moved and stayed here in D.C. to work in the Clinton administration. What all have you been up to in the 30 years since, since ADA? You know, how has the work continued here, here in D.C.? Well, I think we continue to see a growing disability rights movement around the United States and, for that matter, around the world. There is a UN treaty called um, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which 175 countries have now ratified. And uh, this is a very important document. Unfortunately, the U.S. has not yet ratified it, but it's, it's similar to uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act. And uh, there's a group, that has been started a number of years ago called the United States International Council on Disability. And it's an umbrella organization uh, in the U.S. working with organizations, disability rights organizations um, with countries around the world and helping people in the U.S. learn more about issues internationally with disability. There's another group called the American Association of People with Disabilities uh, which came about in the 1990s, is doing phenomenal work, national work um, in the area of policy and working with the business community and really um, doing strong representation on the Hill uh, with members of Congress and also doing a lot of work on voting rights issues and uh, other groups like the National Council on Independent Living which has gotten much stronger over the last 20 years and works with now about 700 CILs around the United States and the Consortium for Citizens with Disabilities. So I would say that, you know, where we were when I was first growing up bears no resemblance uh, to where we are today. There is much more that still needs to be done. The unemployment rate for disabled people in the United States is very high and was very high even pre-COVID. The disability rights movement in the United States and around the world is getting stronger, larger, uh, more cross-disability, greater representation from uh, African-American community, Latino community, indigenous populations, LGBTQ and other communities, which I think is very important. Life is different than it was in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. That all being said, we have so much more work to do. Unemployment rates much higher, and still the issue of people living in restricted living environments. And I think, you know, one other issue that is being given more attention is what's going on in prisons, juvenile adult facilities, where a disproportionate number of individuals have disabilities, hidden disabilities, and a need to be really working uh, both on reforming the systems, but in many ways also helping to ensure 
that children who have disabilities are being identified appropriately when they're in elementary school, receiving services they need in the least restrictive environment, and really uh, learning the same way and same materials that non-disabled children and teenagers are, are learning. Yeah, well, the work the work continues, and uh, we'll let you get back to it. But I know you I know you landed a big victory, at least in terms of uh, the Oscars getting. You know, they they had the ramp there last night, so that's one more small victory <laughs> in in the overall giant you know mountain of work that that you keep doing. I just want to say one other thing, Jason. Now, one thing that's very important is there are so many disabled people now who are involved in the movement, and the ramp. Um, you know, Jimmy Lebrecht, one of the directors of the film, is a wheelchair user himself. And uh, he certainly, with other people working in the industry, have been putting pressure on the Academy to comply with the law and make sure that the facility, you know, that the events, the Oscars are accessible. So I am one of many, and I feel so proud to be a part of this ever-emerging group. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us, and congrats again on being there at the Oscars last night. Um, that's, a, that's a big honor, but, you know, more important than any of that glitz and glamour is, is the actual work you've done over the years and uh, this great documentary. Everybody check it out. It's called Crip Camp, uh, Netflix. Um, check it out now. I think it's been on there for about a year, but I'm sure some I'm sure many people still haven't checked it out. So you have to watch it. I think it's probably my favorite documentary of, of all of last year. So everybody check it out. Hey, thanks so much for joining Thank us you. and congrats on the Oscar nominations. That's great. Thanks so much. Bye everybody. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. <laughs>